John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, good day to you, Todd. And the Looks same like to you. Again, Greg is on an airplane. Well, that's okay. That means we can uh, do whatever we want. Uh, that's true. That's true. And uh, uh, for today, we got an interesting uh, flight instruction event. Wasn't an accident. So it makes it really a pleasure to talk about it because nobody was injured other than maybe their egos. But there is a good uh, lesson or two to learn from this event. And it's unusual, like you said, in both of these cases, uh, there was no aircraft damage, there was no injuries or deaths. But in one case, the NTSB actually wrote a formal incident report on it, which is unusual. And in the other case, fortunately, the uh, one of the, the crews involved, one of the CFIs involved, both of these were CFI-involved events, put in a a message, put in a a report to uh, NASA's ASRS, the Aviation Safety Reporting System, where, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, uh, if you are involved in aviation and you see something of a safety concern that you think should be out there for others to learn, you can submit it to ASRS. They'll de-identify the information, so they won't be able to, no one will be able to identify you. And even if it was because of a mistake that you made, altitude, bust, et cetera, so long as it was not a deliberate action on your part, if the only way the FAA finds out about this is through ASRS, you basically get a free pass. So moral of the story, if you come across a safety issue that you think is important, report it to ASRS. If you engage in some accidental activity where there's a violation of regulations, report it to the ASRS. Only good can come of it. But uh, getting back to the event in question, the the SRS event was in Wilmington, North Carolina, and it involved a decision-making situation with the CFI and the student pilot. Uh, They were coming in for landing, and there was a regional jet in front of them. They were in a small aircraft, a small single-engine aircraft. There was a regional jet taking off in front of them, and they were concerned that um, they would be too close to it. That jet was no longer in the picture, but a second jet was put into a position to take off shortly before they were to land. And the CFI and the student both saw this. They discussed what to do about it. They decided to press on. The regional jet takes off. They slowed the single-engine plane down as much as possible, sort of delay getting there so the effects of wake turbulence would be diminished. 
but they're about 20, 25 feet off the ground, they had some weight turbulence going on. They were able to deal with it, and they landed successfully. The other event, which happened back in 2006, is all across the country at Boeing Field in Seattle. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, Boeing Field is uh, one of the older uh, locations where Boeing produced airplanes as far back as uh, World, World War II. And to this day, they have uh, a fair bit of flight test activity going on at that airport, which is about five miles north of SeaTac Airport. On this particular day, there was the 747 Dreamlifter, which some of you might uh, be familiar with, and we'll have a picture of it on the screen for the video, a converted 747-400 with extra large spaces for uh, hauling large uh, aircraft parts around the world. It was in flight test. It was a heavy weight flight test, so they had about 633,000 pounds uh, total weight of the aircraft during approach. And they're coming in, fairly busy airspace, Seattle on a good day. You had a banner aircraft flying, you had a a 172 that was coming in on a training flight. And there was at least one other aircraft in the area. Controllers were talking to everyone. The 747 could not see the Cessna. Not surprising, it's a small airplane. And from where the 747 was, it probably would have been uh, in front of a bunch of background clutter. But the CFI in the 172 clearly saw the 747. Now they're flying into uh, runways 13 left and 13 right. And the graphic that you might see on the screen shows us 14 left and 14 right. That's the current uh, airport diagram. Back then, the magnetic variation was such where runways were as actually designated 13 left and 13 right, which are only about 370 feet from each other, two parallel runways. And the flight, the CFI did see the aircraft, did see him come at, coming up behind them, and saw the aircraft pass the Cessna. Now, why this is important for weight turbulence, without going into great detail, a larger aircraft like a 747 would produce all sorts of wake turbulence, primarily from the, uh, the wingtips vortices, but also from other parts of the aircraft. And it tends to settle over time and, like a cloud, follow the wind. During this approach, parallel approach, the wind was coming from the right. The 747 was on the right. There was like a nine-knot, almost 90-degree crosswind. And shortly after the 747 passed up the Cessna. The CFI thought about, should they abort the landing? Should they do something about it? But they were continuing on. And they hit uh, the wake turbulence. And as you can see from another picture there, um, there are a bunch of harbor facilities in the vicinity of where this happened. And according to the report, the 172 started at about 1,000 feet, hit, got hit by turbulence, was pointed pretty much straight down, and the pilot recovered at about 150 feet below the tops of the cranes. So this over one of the, the ship channels over there. So this was a very close run thing. Um, they both survived and they all walked away. And the NTSB had a fairly uh, decent incident report on it. But what ties both of these two together is CFI decision-making. Now, after the fact, us sitting in armchairs could say, yes, they should have aborted the landing. But in the moment, there are a lot of things to consider. And one assumes that the CFI was competent enough and experienced enough to make a judgment call in real time. And this is what we're talking about here, a judgment call in real time. Uh, they're taking into account what the situation is, what the weather is, what their capabilities are as a pilot. 
what the capability of the aircraft is and other circumstances. And in this, in both cases, um, the pilot's decisions, the CFI's decisions, led to them encountering turbulence. But also, the CFI's skill kept this from becoming a more serious event than it could have been. Now, as a current yeah. uh, uh, instrument uh, student, uh, I think about uh, this sort of thing all the time. That is, I'm in the aircraft. Clearly, I'm not as experienced as my instructor. Just as clearly, just like with any other uh, two-person cockpit, the people in the cockpit can talk to each other. The people in the cockpit can suggest things to one another. And if something comes up where I have a question about what's going on, I'll ask if it's appropriate. And uh, this was clearly the case with the event in Wilmington, because that's what the ASRS event um, mentioned. Not so clear from looking at the NTSB report if there was conversation, useful conversation going on with the student. You know, it does raise a lot of issues. I mean, if one of the first things that came to my mind is that I, I know I'm not a current pilot, but I do know that wake turbulence does move with the wind. It doesn't always follow directly behind the airplane if there's enough of a, a crosswind uh, or even a quartering wind. If, the, if it's got enough force behind it, it'll move the wake turbulence in the direction that the wind is going. And in this case, it's towards the other runway. So uh, that was the first thing that came to my mind that that uh, the CFI and the student pilot, but I blame more on the CFI, uh, failed to think, failed to consider at the time. Now, in fairness, you know, both of us are members of, the, of uh, NAFTA. Uh, so we, we're involved with people who provide flight instructions. And it's a very busy time mentally for a flight instructor. And you can't always digest every nuance of information that's out there. And uh, some of it gets lost. So uh, in this case, I think the pilot, the uh, CFI, just just didn't register that there was enough of a crosswind to move that, that turbulence over in his direction or her direction. And looking at the Seattle event, having some familiarity with Boeing Field, uh, one of the things about Boeing Field is that they do have large aircraft flying in and out. Uh, when I was working at Boeing and even afterwards in the early 2000s when I was uh, there on a regular basis, um, this was the delivery center for a lot of the aircraft. So a lot of the 737s that were produced down the road and across the uh, uh, Lake Washington at, at Renton would go into Boeing Field, they would do some flight tests and then hand them off to the customers. And in this case, the uh, Dreamlifter, which had just been manufactured a few months before, was going through its initial flight test. And the flight test center is there. So my point being, even if you were a pilot flying regularly in and out of Boeing Field, the Dreamlifter would have been an unusual aircraft there. In fact, 747s were unusual visitors to Boeing Field, Air Force One being one of them. But uh, there might have been a lack of familiarity with the kind of wake turbulence that was caused by a, the Dreamlifter versus a traditional 747. This is speculation on my part. But what's not speculation is this was a visual uh, approach day. There's no indication that either aircraft was under any kind of precision approach to their runways. And although the runways are about 370 feet from each other, parallel runways, there is nothing in the report that indicates how close the flight paths were. Did the outer wingtip of the 747 pass well within 300 feet of the Cessna or well beyond 300 feet? I don't know. But there was no mention of there being too close of an encounter 
physically between the aircraft, but certainly the distance between the aircraft and the fact that you had a nine-knot wind, eight-nine-knot wind blowing over there would affect how much and how quickly wake turbulence would affect the Cessna. At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com slash careers and apply now. Yes. Uh, a position I would not like to be in. You know, it, it's amazing they did recover. Now, it would be easy to say, well, they can just, uh, you know, do a go-around. Of course you can do a go-around. But there are other considerations. First, depending on how busy it is, you might not be able to uh, land after one circuit. You might have to go hold for a while somewhere. And uh, you know, get their itis can affect, again, more speculation. Get their itis can affect anyone in that if you need to meet a schedule and it's like a toss-up whether you should do a go-around and take an extra 15 minutes or go ahead and take the risk and land, more often than not, taking the risk and landing, if it's not a huge risk, is something you would do. Because CFI or regular pilot, there's constantly a balance of risk when it comes to decision-making. Do you even take off at all if the weather might be dicey later on? Or do you say to yourself, we'll keep a close eye on the weather, and if we're up in the sky, if it starts to get dicey, or it goes below my personal minimums, we head back. Now, after the fact, if nothing happens, you can say, that was a good decision. But if you happen to take off on a day where 10, 15 times before, under those circumstances, things didn't get bad. This happens to be a freaky weather day, and suddenly you're in way over your head unexpectedly. Well, you can sit on the sideline and say, that was a bad decision. Or if you were the pilot in that uh, situation, while you're being tossed about, you thought to yourself, you might think to yourself, it was a good decision at the time. If I knew then what I knew now, I wouldn't fly. But the issue I have is, I have to deal with the now right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough place to be for the CFI and for the student pilot. You know, and mixing in with big airplanes with student pilot is something that, that I never thought was a great idea. I mean, we have to do it sometimes if you have to fly and you need to get some experience flying into into larger airports. I understand all that, but it's, it's a, a difficult decision to make to get yourself into those high-risk environments without really thinking them all the way through. And the fact that this airplane was a 4-7 uh, coming into an airport that you normally don't see them coming into may have may have affected the decision that the CFI made. You know, so understanding what else is there, it, uh, saying, okay, we can handle the, whatever else is there, not knowing that they were going to get a surprise visit by a really big airplane that uh, has a tremendous uh, wake vortex that follows around it. And, uh, I mean, most people, pilots, I hope, realize that this a, a 747 wake vortex can extend back about three miles from the airplane. And it's, and it's 380 is even larger. So that's one thing you have to take into consideration. And knowing that it drifts down under normal circumstances, 
The science says that it drips down. So you need to be concerned about it if it's above your altitude. And and as you just said, and we discussed was the uh, crosswind moving that that vortex uh, not no longer behind the airplane, but off to the side one way or the other. So all of those are part of, of a valid decision-making process that CFI has to uh, take into consideration. And, and the student pilot, because he should he or she should be also making those same decisions, should also have those same concerns. I mean, that's the whole purpose of going into bigger airports is to get the experience, not to make it easy. I mean, you got a big, wide piece of asphalt, a nice, long piece of asphalt. Heck, you can do. I remember the first time I went into uh, Logan with a 10,000 foot runway. I mean, we could take three three touch and goes and on one approach. I mean, really. Uh, so there's some benefits to going into those bigger airports, but you got to pay attention. Well, speaking about long airports, and uh, I just had two flashbacks. One to when I was learning how to fly. I was in the Air Force at the time, flying at the Aero Club at Bergstrom Air Force Base, which is where the current Austin Airport is. And this was the base that had F-4s there. And I'm this, you know, low-time solo pilot trying to taxi out to the runway. And I make a turn in what I thought was where I should be. And then this F-4 takes a turn, and we're looking at each other. It's like, okay, I pretty much figure the F-4 knows what they're doing. I'm probably not knowing what I'm doing. I might be in trouble. I didn't get any tr- into any trouble, but, you know, seeing a big smoking airplane in front of you can make you kind of nervous. And the other flashback also with the Air Force, I was Aero Club this time at Edwards. This was in the 80s. And the space shuttle program was alive and well. And one Saturday afternoon, I thought it would be a nice, boring day out there, not too much traffic. Here I am in this little 172, and I have to worry about the shuttle training aircraft coming in from some high angle that I'm not used to seeing. And somewhere out there, there's a B-52 shooting touch and goes. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I don't want to get behind either one of these aircraft. And I can barely see the B-52. I don't know where the shuttle training aircraft is. I was just hoping that air traffic control had it together and was keeping me out of trouble. But uh, I was, my head was on a swivel that day. You're stealing my line. <laughs> I was afraid I was doing that. Well... Decision-making is a big deal. And I hope all of our students out there have taken the time to read the guidance that the FAA has provided in science. They spent a lot of time and effort and money into developing that document about decision-making. It's it's based upon a lot of poor decisions that were made by other pilots and trying to give you the insight to, to understand that Decision-making, no matter how insignificant it may seem, can have a big effect on your flight. And aeronautical aeronautical decision-making is something that's not just for the flight crews. It could be anybody involved in the operation. I mean, you could be some maintenance person, not even a trained maintenance person, but you're just doing basic stuff around the airport airplane, and you see something that doesn't make sense. Well, your decision is, it doesn't make sense, I should tell somebody. Not, it doesn't make sense, I'm a low-ranking person, I don't want to get anybody to yell at me. Because you never know when something that you think is a possible problem is, in fact, a very likely problem. Yes. Well, you covered the one in uh, in Seattle. Let's go to the one in, in Wilmington, North Carolina. And and that one again. This was a uh, a a a risk based decision. That is, there was a circumstance where there was a possibility for 
wake turbulence. They were aware of it. And it was kind of complicated by the fact that there were not one, but two larger aircraft, two regional jets that entered the decision picture of the of the uh, CFI and the pilot. And uh, they were focused on, according to the narrative, which we'll have a link to, the CFI was focused on the first regional jet. It flew away. It was no longer a problem. And then another one enters the picture. So reading between the lines, it's a question of, okay, they might've been invested a whole lot of mental energy into figuring out how to deal with the first aircraft. And the natural response, at least for me, is that big problem's out of the way. I can uh, relax a little bit. Suddenly, another player enters the picture. And you might not be in the same mental space as far as thinking through what's going on. To their credit, they clearly recognized what was going on. They clearly took steps to keep out of danger. But they ended up being in a turbulence event close to the ground. Fortunately, they were able to wrestle the airplane on the ground. And again, a lesser pilot, they might have ended up uh, putting the nose into the ground, maybe getting themselves hurt in the aircraft bent. And I'm sure next time, if they face the same situation, both pilots would elect to um, abort the landing one way or the other, or at least ask air traffic control to uh, for guidance, make sure that they don't uh, cross their paths too closely. And let me also point out that although you might have seen some photos on, let's say, the FAA website illustrating wake turbulence, where they have a couple of smoke generators in the wingtips, and you see these wake, wake turbulence things going on. In clear skies, you can't see anything. In clear skies, you don't see the disturbed air. All you see is air. So you have to be mentally aware that the wake turbulence might be there and sort of have a mental picture in your head. Hey, the airplane is here and I am below the altitude of the airplane. That's a dangerous situation. If I'm at the same height, it might still be a dangerous situation. If I can get higher or if I can drop back and have time between where I am and where that airplane is, you know, altitude and distance keeps you away from the wake turbulence. And in this case, because it was a, a jet that was taking off, initially, you know, wake turbulence has its origins in lift, the process of the wings making lift. Well, they're not making any lift when he's just rolling off a, from a standstill on its takeoff. Right? But we got a couple of engines that are moving a lot of air behind them. And it has the act, exactly the same outcome. It's disturbed air that you're trying to fly through. And it's hot, so it's going to be rising as well. Right. And put those together, and you've got the same effect that you have from wake turbulence. So you need to be concerned about the disruptive air that's caused by these these, uh, engines. And a regional jet's not a high-bypass engine, but it moves enough air to be a problem. Those two engines are close together, uh, even on the wing-mounted ones, but especially on the tail-mounted ones, they're close together, and the effects of them combine to make a lot of disturbed air. Anybody that works on the ground, as I did, that stands behind airplanes that are running, not even when you're close to them, can tell you about the, the, uh, what it feels like to be in a hurricane because it, there's a lot of air moving, and it's, it's going to move you. It's going to move you. We can imagine what it's going to do to an airplane that's relying upon smooth air to provide lift. So, uh, two good examples of 
the need to pay attention, the need, as you stole my line, need to have your head on a swivel, to know what's going on around you, listening to what air traffic control is talking to for other airplanes in the area. You know, and, and I know that when you're calling with your call sign, you don't know what they are. It could be a 172 or it could be a, a 380 from the call sign. You don't know. Uh, but you need to pay attention. If you are in the area, you need to know what's around you. And if you had a modern cockpit with ADSB, uh, you might have a little bit more warning uh, what's out and what's around you and and deduce some things by the altitude and by the, the uh, method that they're flying their approaches for. You can see you can uh, pretty well determined that that's a big airplane you know so you could you could uh, take the appropriate action and also nothing wrong with calling the air traffic control and say what what's coming in what am i what am i following what is you know they're there to help so you got you've got a lot of resources available to you as a pilot to keep you informed and keep you out of trouble and I, I'd venture to say that most air traffic controllers, if you raise that issue, would probably move you out of the way to make sure you didn't get yourself into that trouble and and, and maybe expedite you around so you can come in and, uh, and be out of trouble. So, you know, in aviation, I, I often say in my presentations when I give it to groups uh, that we are our brother's keeper. And when you see things uh, that are wrong, you should open your mouth. You know, just, just, and sometimes that's all it takes. I, I've got several examples in the maintenance arena where just by saying, you know, saying something to the individual, saying, you know, what are you doing? Say that again. And, that, you know, they go over it again and then realize where they were going and where they made the mistake. And that's all it takes sometimes. It's just to, just to make people stop for a second and think and, and, uh, and figure out where they are and what they said and the, maybe the negative consequences of what they said. So being a, being our brother's keeper in aviation is, is not a bad thing. I mean, I got examples in the flight deck. Uh, uh, I believe it was a Delta Airlines crew that called the 727 that was in front of them on an airline that his spoiler on, the, on one side of the airplane, the spoilers were up all the time that they were taxiing while well, the airplane just came out of maintenance and they have devices they put in to hold those up because when you're working in them, somebody puts hydraulic power on the spoilers and there's been more than one hand and arm that's been crushed and uh, or worse uh, because of that. So they've developed a lock that you put on the spoiler actuator to prevent it from coming down. And they get forgotten sometimes in the rush to get the airplane out, they get forgotten and that's what happened in this case. So some mechanic uh, probably got some time off or, or had his license suspended for, for a period of time, whatever. It was a mental lapse in there, and the FAA comes down pretty hard on that. And But it was a, another airline crew that saw it and raised the issue. So it's just another example of my line that I use, that we are our brother's keeper. When you see something that's not right, raise the issue. You don't have to do it in a negative way. You don't have to be flip about it. But just, just say, hey, are you, are you aware that your spoilers are still up? You know, and let them figure it out from there. Well, I think we've given our, our audience enough to think about, Todd, so you can have the second last word because I've got to get my last feeling. 
Well, my second to last word will be an advertisement for NASA's ASRS system. Uh, this is a, a system that was tailor-made for those situations where decisions happen, things turned out either badly or almost badly, and it's a potential learning opportunity. And if you come across a situation where something happened, but it was avoided at the last second, let's say they found the spoiler issue and were able to correct it before they took off. Well, anyone involved in that, the maintenance person, either one of the, the flight crews, if they should uh, write up a report on that, that would be helpful to the entire industry. Because that's the kind of event that does not get officially investigated by the NTSB or any other organization, but it's absolutely valuable as a lessons learned kind of thing. And if you happen to have made a mistake that caused the problem, like I said before, ASRS is a get-out-of-jail-free card. If the only way the FAA found out about it was through ASRS, and it was accidental, not deliberate, you're okay. By the way, ASRS has a record over a million inputs. Not once has the identity of someone submitting one of those been compromised. You know, they've been around for a long time, over 40 years, I believe. I did a lot of work with them in the early 90s. And then after I left the NTSB, I did a lot of work with them as well. And that get out of jail free card where you don't get charged by the FAA uh, is earned because the data that you submit has more value than they would ever get out of punishing a pilot or a mechanic, you know, fining them, you know, hundreds of dollars or or suspending his, his right to use the certificate for a period of time. That gets you nowhere. But getting the information about how the problem uh, occurred, how it developed, uh, can lead to circumstances where you prevent that from happening to some other individual. So ASRS is a very, very valuable tool. And I know a lot of people that have used it. And in, fa- in fact, this week, today, today was the last day. There was a conference this week uh, that called InfoShare, where all the players in aviation get together under an FAA umbrella and they share all that data. And the folks from ASRS are there, as well as the people from the airlines that have a safety management system in place. And uh, they they have ASAP programs within the airlines. Everybody, business aviation, everybody that's got a, a, a hat in the ring in aviation was there to share information, big guys, little guys, all of them. And like I said, it wrapped up today, this afternoon, earlier. I have, I had a lot of friends that were uh, there. They were calling me, giving me, giving me the, uh, the typical airline line about why wasn't I there? I was trying to say to polite, I'm trying to be politically correct and not say what they were saying. <laughs> but anyway, they were, they would, they were ragging on me to why I wasn't there. But, uh, you know, information is, is gold in this industry. And that's what we're trying to spread. And that's what many, many other people, AOPA, the airlines themselves to their employees, uh, the manufacturers, they're all trying to, to give the pilots and the maintenance people the tools that they need to stay out of trouble. It's one thing to have a manual, a flight ops manual, a maintenance manual for a mechanic and all the other manuals. We have plenty of manuals. It's one thing to have all those manuals but it's another thing to know what's in them. And, it's in, and and then it gets even more difficult to apply what you know. And it's, you know, it's, I, I learned when I was in A&P school, uh, it was pounded into my head that your certificate is a license to learn. 
You don't, once you get through school, you're not over. It's just the beginning. And as a result of that, I became a, a, a serial reader, if you will. I read everything every day. I was reading things. I was fortunate. I had a job where we had some, oftentimes had some downtime, and I always had things to read. And that I had to bring those in in those days because you didn't have the internet. Today, it's easy. I sit in the airport waiting around. I'm right on my, on my, uh, my brain. <laughs> Right there, reading what's going on. I read all the incidents. I read uh, uh, ASS, ASRS reports. I mean, you know, that I'll follow up because of an issue. I mean, this so easy. I mean, tonight before we did this, we went on and uh, we're bouncing around on the internet, making sure that we had all the facts on the tool that we were going to use. I mean, there's so much information that's available today, but for everybody in this business, it's 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 no excuse not to know what's going on out there. In fact, it's probably could be considered overload. There's so much information. But in any event, I hope everybody can uh, take something away from this, this uh, segment. And as I always do, if you're going to go flying, do a good pre-flight before you even get to the airport. Redo it again at the airport. Verify everything you see. And don't forget, the weather here, the weather there, and everything in between a good pre-flight, if you don't know how to do a good pre-flight, get a mechanic that works on the airplane. They'll be glad to walk around with you. And I, I you know, I mean, I, I've been involved with a few accidents recently where uh, a good pre-flight wasn't done for a long time because there was something working that uh, ultimately caused a crash. Uh, but they didn't find it in the previous 20 or 30 flights at least. So, do a good walk around. Get to somebody that knows it. Even on YouTube, this I, I go on YouTube and look at people that will walk you around the airplane with their pre-flights. And there's good ones and there's exceptional ones. So you need to bounce around, not stop with one. Look at all the ones you can because there's good points in virtually every one of them. So do a good walk around when you get in the airplane. You know, make sure you do your, your proper checks before you take off. And then after you get in the air, put that head on a swivel. You need it. You know, we have a lot of students today flying around, many, many more than we've had in the recent past. And, uh, you know, you want to have your accident, not somebody else's accident. So, you know, somebody told me that a long time ago. You know, you don't want to be involved with somebody else's accident. If you're going to have one, have your own. And because uh, you can control that. So please, please. Fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, 
fly safe.